Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the Big Screen Book Club, the podcast that celebrates the loving relationship between literature and film and seeks to answer the biggest question of them all. Was the book really better? I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Joseph Kime. This month, we decided it was time to cover the book that has become one of the top-selling novels in the world and take a look at its brand new adaptation, which has just landed in cinemas. That's right, we're taking a look at Where the Crawdads Sing, the 2018 novel written by Delia Owens and the film directed by Olivia Newman, starring Daisy Edgar-Jones and produced by self-professed bibliophile Reese Witherspoon. The story follows Kaya, a young girl who lives in the marshes of North Carolina's Barkley Cove with her family. But as her mother and siblings begin to leave home in the face of domestic abuse from the family's patriarch, Kaya's upbringing is defined by abandonment and learning to fend for herself until her father finally leaves her isolated in the marsh. We watch her grow up and drift towards Tate Walker, a kind-hearted old friend of her brother's, as he teaches her to read and write and eventually joins the long list of people to abandon Kaya as he fails to return from college to see her. But the book isn't all romance. The story is intertwined with the court case that follows the suspected murder of Barkley Cove's star quarterback, Chase Andrews. And as a result of their relationship when she's 19, Kaya is the prime suspect. The book has sold over 15 million copies since it debuted in 2018, and it's one that has still caught some controversy, as much of the story's presentation of Kaya's life is reminiscent of Owens' own time in Zambia, where bizarrely, she and her then-husband are still wanted for questioning in the real-life murder of a poacher, which we won't comment on, but we recommend the New Yorker article for Hunter for further not-at-risk-of-defamation reading. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're gonna be careful. <laughs> <laughs> we're covering be our backs here. Podcast. But <laughs> potential murder aside, mm. for now, what did you think of where the crawdads sing? So going into this one, I had I was a bit apprehensive, mostly because I knew, like personally, a lot rode on this, mostly because my mum loves it, and naturally out the gate, I felt like right. I'm going to have to love this one. Um, and again, as I have done for a few episodes, I've been going to the book first and then turning to the film. And I didn't dislike the book, I don't think, nor did I particularly love it. It was, I think it was perfectly entertaining throughout. I didn't find it very, you know, difficult to get through. But there are a lot of moments where I felt there were a few things off about it. And for the most part, I think that a huge, huge chunk of this book is completely, it's almost worthless, I think, because it feels as though the book is trying to do too many things at once just to give itself that extra little pep and to pop off the shelves a little bit. And it's almost as though Delia Owens wrote a romance novel, which with very little to discern itself from other romance novels on the shelf, except for its incredible setting. Um, so in comes the potential murder. Um, I don't think it all worked. I think a lot of it I quite liked. I think the descriptions of the setting are wonderful, but for the most part, it doesn't really come together for me and it starts to really sag and heave at the end. What do you think? I, I'm going to be honest, I had never heard of this book until... I got a press release for the movie coming Really? Out, which I know is quite shocking considering it's one of the top selling novels all time I was going to say, have world. you ever been in a Tesco in your life? Because <laughs> this mean, is like... Yes. 
<laughs> but I don't go to the book section because I don't get my books in Tesco. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We're learning stuff about me. I guess I don't get my books in Tesco. <laughs> I don't think my Tesco has books. My Tesco yeah, doesn't it's, have it's books. Practically all, it's practically all Danielle Steele and the um, Thursday Murder Club. But for a while, mm. this one was right at the peak. This was like okay. ultimate holiday pickup read. Right. Yeah. I'm my Tesco. I'm realizing this now. My Tesco doesn't have books or magazines. Isn't that really odd? Upsetting. And it's the big Tesco as well. I think they just think people in Hove don't read. <laughs> 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 they don't read. No, they're just that they're just eating croissants on the beach. <laughs> they're not reading books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I guess my overall, I saw the film first, mm. and then I and then I read the book. Um, I do think the book is better than the adaptation, quite significantly. But I have very very mixed feelings about the novel. I I do appreciate some of the language that she uses, and I think that you know because she is a, a naturalist uh, in her other life and, and career you know the way that she describes the marsh and the creatures that live in the marsh there's like there's some really beautiful language in there and I and I think it's pleasant to read in that way but mm. coming away from it like the story fundamentally does not make sense to me <laughs> at, <laughs> at, at all <laughs> just at all I don't the the murder trial the outcome of the murder trial, this idea that the story is about a marginalized woman, but in what way is she marginalized? Mm. The story, I don't know. I I have a lot of questions, which I guess this is why we have a podcast, because we can we can answer the <laughs> questions now together. Yes, we're the, we're the authority here. I, th- I mean, I think I, I agree. It's like... It doesn't really... F- Obviously, I, I agree. Like, I think the book is better because it has more It has more of a draw and the way that the language is, it really draws you in and it presents something more to you than the film does in its sort of... in its pre- presentation of everything natural that happens around because I think what the book captures so nice is the beauty of the grit and the objective nastiness of the swamp like all the dirt and the mushrooms and and the murky waters it makes it all seem quite romantic whereas the film sort of even when it isn't on a sound stage it takes you to the more touristy parts of a of a swamp i'd say and it makes it it takes you to the locations where you'd look at it and you think yeah that's a really nice desktop wallpaper but it doesn't give you much <laughs> to really assess about what makes this incredibly like natural place that's so teeming with life, so beautiful. That's something that I think the film was missing, even though the, the fact that it's a film should make it perfect. Yeah, I well, one description I really liked was it is quite early on that line about marsh is a space of light where grass grows in water and water flows into the sky. And like mm. I really understand that description because because uh, like swamp areas there's like a there's like a thickness to them because there's so much vegetation and the water and the humidity um you know and because the the land is quite flat the sky just goes on forever mm. and 
and I think you really get that in in that sentence but in the movie yeah it's it's missing it's missing that like life that you said like something about like all the life and it was teeming with life you Hmm. don't get that impression at all because there's something about swampland that's so like there's like so much going on it's like all the plants and all the grass and all the mud and all the water and fuck there's an alligator there and (laughs) (laughs) and here's this bird and all of these bugs and the fireflies and everything and the heat is so overwhelming like there's that's what's kind of exciting and beautiful about that part of the world is is this idea of like a cornucopia of nature and it's it's all there and it's all surrounding it's all so much but in the movie it's just like yeah there's like one bird (laughs) yeah there's big red that's it yeah there's like a singular bird and here's some nice blue sky um and like here's some nice swamp moss (laughs) there look (laughs) at it it's looking so cute it's so weird because i watched the film the same week that um, this is South Carolina, I think. I watched, um, I rewatched that movie, Beautiful Creatures, which is mm. also like a like a southern pale white girl marginalized by society <laughs> in the South storyline, and like it struck me so much how that movie, like a like a, it's like a silly Twilight ripoff movie, yeah, does so much <laughs> of a better job of like presenting <laughs> and it's not even the swamp it's just like south carolina area like of of the sort of like wildness and the nature of that place and the fact that it is like yeah it is teeming with things yeah uh it just yeah that, i was like why did this movie do it better i don't understand <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think the marsh is a really big part of Kaya's character because obviously it makes her ostracized from society basically and the book it I don't think it does it particularly successfully but you can tell that an attempt here was made to address the marginalization of the quote-unquote marsh girl um but you don't see it in the film and this is one of the biggest thing that bothers me about the film because it doesn't try because I think there is, like, well, I was speaking to my mum about the book and she quite liked that it was a story about about marginalisation, basically. And it does, in even in its mild ways, it touches on racism with Jumpin and and all of this. But the film doesn't bother to, a, to try to sort of make sense of racism of the time, nor does it really make much attempt to make sense of the marginalization of, of Kaya as the marsh girl. All we know about it is that she lives in a marsh. People call her a marsh girl. And we only know about that because of the court case where they're saying, Oh, maybe we should, maybe we should do right by the marsh girl. It doesn't do anything to make me believe that she's ostracized, especially when it's looking at Daisy Edgar Jones with her incredibly straight hair. And she's always seemingly got a face full of makeup and she looks wonderful and her teeth are perfect. And it, it doesn't do a good job at all of expressing marginalization in this time period because it doesn't bother to try. Yeah, I'm sort of I I'm slightly torn on this because the movie handles it ter- awfully, and then the book handles it like quite badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite terribly, and then somehow the 
the movie is worse because you're right in the novel there is a more direct link between her Kaya's marginalization as the swamp girl and you do get more of a sense that like it's because she is living in abject poverty so she goes into town and she's not got shoes um like her feet are dirty her hair is is messed up it seems like her clothes aren't clean and so people like visually there is a class difference between mm. the the townspeople and her and you can kind of go okay i can i can see where some of the marginalization is happening there and then as you say there is this like this really clumsy i found it very uncomfortable attempt to then link her to to yeah to jumpin and mabel who seem mm. to be the only black characters or well because they say that there's like a black area of town but you don't meet anybody else it's no. just these two people <laughs> um like there's a very like clumsy attempt to like link them together and like that's why these characters are, are become friends and are drawn together because they share in marginalization but like knowing that a white author wrote this i found some of the stuff like i don't think a white person should be writing this <laughs> like yeah. it made me feel really uncomfortable because like this woman does not have the authority to be talking about <laughs> like that i don't know <sighs> i'm struggling because there's so much in this book that just kind of made me feel weird <laughs> no, I get, no i get it because it's yeah. just it's delia owens like putting her hand on the hand of the black community and going see we're the same yeah and like there are there are certainly like stories to be told about the links between like what do you remember that movie mudbound <laughs> like that was a great story about like how white rural poverty uh links up to racism um like mm. that story can be told but i think not by delia owens <laughs> <laughs> i don't i just don't i feel like it's a bit weird that she decided that she can be an authority on this um but hey yeah and then the movie is just there's no link whatsoever there's no it what really bothered me is that they turn like what is in the book like a fairly straightforward description of a child who has been abandoned and is in yeah just terrible poverty struggling to survive like struggling to keep it together and in the movie it's like mm, hashtag swamp core aesthetics <laughs> like <laughs> like the the sort of the struggle of it all like the idea that she was marginalized because she didn't have like the same resources as everybody else in town like that's all gone because mm. the house is lovely. <laughs> like, yeah, she's always wearing makeup. Her clothes are absolutely pristine. And I will say, at least in the book, you have a lot more about, like, over time, she manages to make money and she gets clothing. And you kind of understand, mm. like, why maybe in the book near the end, the class difference has narrowed a little bit. Um, but in the movie... Yeah, I just there's a really weird scene in the film where she goes into town and all the women are like, oh, my God, she's she's wearing makeup. I've never seen her wear makeup before. And she's wearing makeup in every single scene in the movie. Like You can see the <laughs> contour line on Daisy Eckertrude's face. It's like no one is born with contour lines. What are you talking about? <laughs> Sorry, I've talked for a long time. I'm just like my brain is trying to process everything. <laughs> 
No, it, I think you're right. It's just, I, I came away from this film thinking that they had made a film because they had to make a film of where the crawdads sing because it's a popular book and they can make money off it. I didn't really get the impression that it was made with much heart, mostly because I didn't think it made much of an attempt to replicate what the book was trying to say. It instead just tried to replicate the book. Because obviously there's the there's the case of marginalization and there's the abandonment as well. And especially as throughout the book, you, you get a lot more and you get grow a bit more intimate with the fact that Kaya is always looking down the lane, hoping that her mother will walk back up it, even into her adulthood. Um, but in, in the film, you don't really get it. And it reaches the point where she's saying to her brother that, you know, I've spent my whole life waiting for her to walk back up that path. And you don't believe it. A lot of this film is just a matter of not believing it because there's you haven't really been given much of a reason to. And I think a lot of that is down to the fact that the book itself is a little bit bloated and... It has, it tries to tell a lot of different stories in many ways, in both text and subtext. And I don't think making a film under two hours is going to be able to keep up with something like that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would add on top of that, I think for me, like, Kaya does not strike me as a real person in either the book or the film. Like there is such a there's a very odd fantasy element to her because I don't know, it's just the book goes into such makes such an effort to be like, she's so innocent. The earth is her mother. <laughs> she's so pure. Her only friends are the birds. And look at these two men so in love with her. <laughs> like, mm. It's I to me, like there is this slightly like manic pixie dream girl element about her until I will say in the book's defense, the quite near the end where she just has that explosion where she's gotten out of court and she's so mad. And she said, I have never hated them. They have hated me. Like they mm. treated me this way. This is all this stuff to me. I was like, Oh, finally, like some personality. <laughs> like, okay. Like, Kaya has woken up. <laughs> but I feel like for a lot of the novel, it seems to me like, yeah, it is like Delia Owens is trying to, to wrap what is very much, you know, a romantic fantasy of the girl connected to nature, so free, so liberated, uh, in love with two, two men are in love with her oh my god who am I going to choose <laughs> like and then trying to take that and then trying to wrap it inside this like little like like thin chocolate casing of <laughs> of socioeconomic concerns and poverty and like um yeah uh marginalization and and the criminal court system <laughs> where I, and I I could feel I could feel like those two elements were constantly butting up against each other because it's like i like does this book one talk about the reality of like what it would be like to to grow up in the 60s and have your entire fucking family abandon you and then you're just in the shack on your own just like shit mm. um with ah oh, 
I love the gulls so much. <laughs> <laughs> the gulls are my friends. And the way that it's like, for me, it was the scene where she's in court and like the cat comes because, you know, she's so yeah. connected to nature. The cat just comes and sits <laughs> on her lap and everyone's like, oh, my God, the cat's never done that before. Whoa. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I felt that to me was like the, the struggle of the, the book. And I feel like I kind of wanted it to pick a lane because it felt very it made me weird and uncomfortable to try and tell those two stories at the very same time yeah no yeah i get exactly what you mean i think it's 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 a fun time to follow kaya she tries to find her way around the marsh but it's quite hard to connect directly to her because for the most part she doesn't really like do anything and a lot of the things that she does do are prompted by the things that have happened to her she's not she's she's a character with initiative but it's all completely reactive and it's obviously like it's down to tate that she can read and write it's down to tate that she publishes her book and it's down to tate that she can actually afford the things that she needs and it's i don't know i think maybe it was made in an effort to make it easier for the reader to project onto her but realistically giving her so little to actually do of her own will that i find it quite hard to latch on at all yeah you're so right about the fact that this character in reality does not have that much agency she's mm. not yeah i do i find it frustrating that she only it had to be tate telling her to do to write the book when yeah she'd been doing these illustrations her entire life and i get maybe tate could have like implanted the idea in her head but it's always it's always somebody else being like you can do this or it has to be her lawyer being like you will be free and and she just kind of like i don't know <laughs> she just sort of floats she sort of floats and because it's meant it's there's such a concerted effort to make her seem so ethereal and in, in that sense because I think the the one theme on top of the the story of marginalization there is this sort of like moral narrative about because she's constantly observing nature and going like huh oh the in the praying mantis there's that whole gross description of like mm. the the boy praying mantis is like getting his fuck on with the brain mantis and then she she turns around and bites his head off and starts like eating him whole and he's still like going at it <laughs> and she watches that entire scene and she's like hmm maybe it is okay that i murdered somebody <laughs> and so there's this sort of, yeah there's this like very what i found like totally bizarre like moral like thesis to it of saying is it is it okay is it okay for women to murder men because you know praying mantises do it mm? yeah and that like <laughs> it's all just part of nature like nature got a nature and humans are part of nature so who are you to say and <laughs> i don't know like <laughs> at the end of the book i was like i I don't know if you've justified yourself, Kaya. <laughs> <laughs> she, she doesn't really make a very good case for herself. I mean, I think after yes. reassessing that line, I think I think the likelihood is, I think Kaya probably sees herself as the male praying mantis in terms of like being 
being so attentive towards somebody, her being used by that person, yet still being desperate for that attention back. And it's it's not very well told. I had to really sit back and think about it. But as you said, it doesn't it doesn't really do much much to you know to make murder all right. <laughs> and while That's everything, okay, because <laughs> uh, like for, for the whole book, there's so much of a focus on nature. And it's when it comes to that metaphor, it's really hard to piece it together because what I've realized about this after having seen how the film portrays Kaya is that it's really, really hard to girl bossify the Marsh girl when all of her actions are defined by the men around her. See, I I have to disagree with you. Mm. <laughs> I can't believe I'm disagree with the fuck here, but I, this, okay, I highlighted, this is after the description of the, which I won't read out, the praying mantis. <laughs> Kaya knew judgment had no place here. Evil was not in play, just life pulsing on, even at the expense of some of the players. Biology sees right and wrong as the same color in different light. And I don't, to me, that's very clearly like an argument that the and the right before it says the females got what they wanted, and like mm-hmm. you know, I feel like this is very Lady Gaga at the House of Gucci premiere <laughs> going, I don't condone murder, but I do support the empowerment of women, <laughs> but in like praying mantis form, and look. I was more open to the argument when Lady Gaga was making it. Um, I feel like framing it through bugs, to me, you've lost me. (laughs) You've lost me with the bug argument because I am not a bug and I'm offended by the accusation. (laughs) I mean, yeah, she does. It's probably worth clarifying. we've We've already spoiled the court case. So... So we'll just crack on as is. Yes, but as sorry. But everyone's, this is the assumption of this podcast. We're all, you've all read it and seen it. Yeah. And we've, we've done the story now. twice in preparation. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I still don't particularly feel like, because of course it's good that it all comes around and it gives Kaya her, I don't want to say vengeance. I don't think that's, particularly what it is she gets justice in some form but it's still hard to justify the court case as a whole because it doesn't it doesn't feel like it services that point well enough to justify it being an entire section of the book and it's it's so weird to look at it in context with the rest of the book because the book is divided up into two sections the second section being the way that I read it at the very least, much longer than the first. And it really does feel like it's a huge weight on this story. And like, it spends so much time recounting so much of what's happened and the stuff that we already know that it becomes a real, just a real drag. And it's hard for me to make sense of why the court case has been added to this book, if not to just beef it up and give it something a little bit extra aside from all the romance stuff going on on the sides. What, what do you reckon? Well, this is what I find incredibly odd. Is like, you tell me this is a story about marginalization and, <laughs> and we're going into the court case 
with the system apparently rigged against her mm. because because uh yeah because she's out in the swamp she's very poor people judge her assume that she's done this murder we've come up against like multiple problems first off she's acquitted like she's she isn't found guilty so like <laughs> <laughs> i guess she wasn't that marginalized <laughs> like it's really weird to have this entire story about the awful injustices of what it's like to be marginalized by com her community but she's found innocent <laughs> and quite easily because yeah. it's pretty obvious that she didn't do it and also the the testimonies and like the people giving evidence are not really pushing that much for her guilt like yeah no. the sheriff i guess is kind of but not if you compare it to like a lot of other stories about court cases involving marginalized people like those stories are so different because you see awful corruption like prejudice stuff going on behind the scenes like awful mistreatment while in this story it's like oh they're quite nice to her in the jail they let the cat in <laughs> <laughs> she goes to court like okay they're kind of whispering but then most of the testimony is seems fair people are just reporting what they've seen and like in a court case you do have to like argue both sides <laughs> no one's lying no one's there's no corruption um she's not found guilty and then she fucking did it she fucking did it then <laughs> <laughs> the story has the audacity to be like this poor marginalized woman oh she did do it though she actually she did actually murder that guy <laughs> how dare they think she could have murdered the man that she did murder she actually did murder <laughs> I'm like, I can't, this is why I cannot, I, I'm sorry, I can't buy the argument that this is a powerful story about marginalization <laughs> because she did a murder and she got away with it because she's white <laughs> and she's pretty and young. <laughs> like, this to me is a story of like fucking white privilege. It really is. <laughs> and, it and pretty privilege that she just like, go Girl bossed her way into the courtroom, like got the cat to sit on her lap, and it was like, wow, she must be innocent. She's so pretty and nice, and cats love her. And then she goes home and like rubs her hands together and go, ha 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I wanna I wanna acknowledge the fact that Chase Andrews is a awful person and probably yeah. did deserve to be pushed off the thing. Um, I'm not trying to like defend him. I'm just saying if this is if this is meant to be a story about how awfully this woman is treated by her community, getting away with a murder does not <laughs> does not push the argument well for me. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that seems like a pretty sweet deal. She got to murder somebody. And she lived happily ever after with her other Tate, her nice little himbo. <laughs> <laughs> because because she isn't found guilty, which she very clearly is, there is... It, the, the point of the court case is to prove one of two things. It's either, one, that the entire court case was completely redundant and what you have been reading this whole time means nothing for the... For the 
continued course of the story, or two, your marginalisation isn't actually that bad. Thanks, Delia Owens, white woman. That's exactly what I was coming to your book for. I can't... It, it's either completely stupid or horribly offensive or even both. But it's... <laughs> either way, it's useless. Because if she gets away with it anyway, and then the book, even in the book's own fashion of retelling you how everything happened in the context of the court case and going through it from there backwards on things that you've already learned, once you find out that Kaya did do it, you get absolutely nothing as to what actually happened because it feeds you a bunch of evidence from either side. It'll be, oh, she was seen on this boat and then the lawyer will be like, oh no, because she was doing this at the same time. It gives you all of the all of the evidence there it decides that she isn't guilty it then tells you that she is guilty and even though it's been hand feeding you everything for the entire court case it's just like yeah you can figure it out can't you no no i can't you've been treating me like a moron this whole time and now i'm supposed to piece together the entire book at the end of it nah not biting well i feel like i feel like i understand how she did it but it does frame her as an evil genius. Yeah. Because she took the bus to the place. She had the dinner with the editor. And then she disguised herself as a young man, got on the <laughs> bus, <laughs> went back, got on the boat, used the wind to guide her because <laughs> she's a wind expert, got there in time, <laughs> pushed him, immediately covered her tracks efficiently went back and I guess even though the wind would only goes in one direction somehow it was also still really fast <laughs> got back onto the dressed as an old woman <laughs> got back on the bus and then went back to the motel like the whole point of the court case was like that's improbable no one could do that but <laughs> and then it's like yeah did, yeah she did <laughs> she did do it and that's like that's incredibly sociopathic of her to have done. And it's a little bit This is the thing, it's like with that character, um, you know, it would have made sense if it was an in the moment thing, because this man did something absolutely horrific to her. Mm. And in a moment of anger, yes, I could imagine he'd she'd go, oh, push and be like, oh shit. That's believable with the character mm. that we have been sold this entire story, pure and innocent Kaya, who is friends with seagulls. But to have this reveal at the end where you're like, she masterminded this like <laughs> crime of the century <laughs> that that only Sherlock Holmes himself could have solved. <laughs> it, it really is some BuzzFeed unsolved shit. And I think that's what makes it so incredibly jarring. It's so extortionate. And obviously she had to get away with it. But oh my, oh my God. And the whole court case, it runs through everything that happens. And it's like, nobody could ever do that, could they? And we as an audience and the entire jury goes, no, that's quite right. And then the book goes, yeah, but the Marsh girl could do it. That's not... That's, I, don't, I don't think that's the message you were trying you were trying to tell. <laughs> exactly, because it's like, oh, actually, this entire character that I have sold you for like 300 or whatever pages is a carefully constructed lie because 
this woman is actually Ted Bundy. Like, (laughs) (laughs) she uh, just has murder on the brain and knows exactly how to commit a perfect murder without getting caught. And and now she's just laughing from the grave. (laughs) Like, ha ha ha. I did, like, watching the film, I did think, oh, right, Tate did it, right? Because that's a more... Mm. That's a more logical. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, maybe the, the ending would have been Tate confessing and she forgives him and they're like, okay, cool. We're all good. And I'm really sorry <laughs> that that happened to you. That's really fucked up. They assumed it was you because you were the marginalized girl. I was white man just vibing with my fisherman dad. No one thought <laughs> it was me. <laughs> I feel like with that, I know, I know it's awful. I know it's really bad to say this is how they should have done it because yeah. that's a very weak form of criticism. But I think I was watching the film so convinced, like, oh, that's the only way the story can end, really. Mm. Because we need to know who did it. And the only other suspect is Tate. And that thematically would make sense. So I was completely blindsided by the fact it was actually Kaya. Especially <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long telling you that it wasn't. Yeah, and like, what an asshole you were for thinking it was her. (laughs) And be like, wow, you really thought that this poor girl who banded in childhood with an abusive father, her mother left, her siblings left, she had to fend for herself her entire life, and you have the audacity to think that she committed this murder. She did commit this murder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's... It's, it's so good because I think the book itself, it, it, it's certainly got its merits. I don't want to I don't want to come away from this with the impression that we're just pointing and laughing at Delia Owens, even though that's that's exactly what we're doing. But it is <laughs> there, there is stuff to really enjoy about this book. But the fact that practically the whole second half of the book doesn't even need to be there. It really saps out some of the value that you can pull out of this. And the the film itself as well, it doesn't really do a very good job of expressing who Chase is as a character. Realistically, we we know who this guy is, but it's it's also quite hard to believe why Kaya would be interested in him in the first place. Because in the book, I think you have an easier time getting him because you kind of believe it when he says, you know, he he like Kaya only Kaya really knows who he is the him that he can't show anybody else when he says it in the film it's just you can't you can't really buy it and it spends the whole film at the same time almost with the sort of overhanging vibe of when even when Tate doesn't come back from college it's like oh but he still loves her and you can feel that sort of reverberating through the film maybe that's just me having read the book before but I always felt like it was always going to come back around to Tate I agree. And I, I do think I will. Yeah. To, in the book's defense, I think that love story is is well written. And and I said earlier, I think she has a really nice turn of phrase and like the pure romance part of that book is good. And I liked mm. it. And I would have liked to just have a nice romance <laughs> between. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit weird that like he's 18 and she's 14 and yeah that's 
very weird. Didn't need that. <laughs> Could have made them the same age. Really? It's fiction. You have the power to control this narrative. Why did you make that decision? Um, but, like, yeah, I think the way that she describes, like, how they come together and also their mutual connection with nature and mm. and how it's the way that they observe things is what brings them together. Like, that's beautiful. That's really nice. And and I, I think... Like that could have that could have been the book, but it seems like there was an impulse on her part that it, like it needed to say something else like about yeah. like life and nature and society. And it may sometimes sometimes that makes me sad because I, I think we as, as a culture just undervalue love so much yeah that it makes me wonder like did she not just think that she could have written a really beautiful romantic story about uh like two two very lonely people brought together by by how um connected they feel to nature like perfect love it but did she think that wasn't enough because it is enough it's very much enough for a story yeah i mean I do think there was it, it's like there was an impulse to to create something that would stand out but it it I fully would have been really really happy if this book had cut off about halfway down the middle if that was the whole story I'd probably rate it a lot higher than I would because it's very sincere and like you said the turn of phrase is really gorgeous and the attentiveness to the surroundings is what really makes most of this book incredibly special and it's the marsh itself almost as its own character and big red's appearance and the things that kaya does to earn her money and her life in the marsh is really appealing and it's 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 what books are for it's it's brilliant escapism and watching these two fall in love is still really lovely it's just it, the book feels like it's trying too hard to be something it's not and you can feel that moment. It's almost as though she started writing a love story and then decided halfway through she got through that plot point that it was going to turn into something completely different. It's it's disappointing because there are some books that feel like they juggle too much, but at least they have some kind of cohesive message or idea. I don't really feel the same way about Crawl Dads because it's two different stories, to be perfectly honest. And by the end of it, it's it might as well be two different Kayas because one is, you know, she's the absolute epitome of nature and she commands the marsh and she sort of just sinks into the bog and is like, is this very like ethereal, almost like a fairy of the marsh. And then at the actual end of the book, she's a cold hearted killer who is able to devise her way into convincing a town that we're supposed to believe has hated her for all of her life for them to, to say outright that she's not guilty when she goes out of her way to murder someone. Yeah, it's interesting. And like, again, we can't, uh, we can't really talk about it for legal reasons. But, <laughs> um... I would say anyone listening, read that New Yorker article because if you if I think if you you place a lot of the thematic messaging, like the treatment of marginalization in this story in the context of like who the person who wrote this book is, it it gets even more like weird. I'll just say it gets weirder. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And it it made it quite difficult for me reading this book to like separate it from the person in that piece mm. of going, oh, it's quite hard to have, it's quite hard to like come at it with generous feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. Even though, yeah, I will I will be straight up and honest about it that I th- I thought, yeah, I thought that the relationship, yeah, that sort of like threesome storyline of Kaya, <laughs> Tate and nature <laughs> was was really beautiful. There was some really like nice writing in it, but it's it's very odd to me that this is one of the top selling novels of all time, and I'm still sort of surprised now, having gone through this entire experience of of having seen the the film, the very flashy film, um, you know, and then having gone and read this book, and I'm sort of like walking away from it, going, I mean. Fifty Shades of Grey, I at least get because there was like a lot of sexy stuff in that, right? <laughs> yeah, there's that, <laughs> right? And that, like, I understand why Fifty Shades of Grey became a huge hit because it was like a very liberating for I think a lot of people to read who didn't feel like they had that sort of like that uh, sort of openness of sexuality in the mainstream. Like, I can mm. intellectually understand. I read like a quarter of it out of curiosity. It's very poorly written, but I understand why it's popular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this it, book in this movie, I'm like, what are people getting out of this? Because I do not understand. <laughs> and it, I think, surprisingly, like, I th- do think that Fifty Shades of Grey is actually a really good like comparison here because it offered something not entirely new but it offered a mainstream take on something that had already existed that was that became so popular because of how accessible it was that it created an entire new boom of sexual liberation in middle-aged women it's so powerful and the fact that it was on every shop shelf easy to reach for it made it even more like potent but what i'm so fascinated by about crawdads is on paper, when you're told what happens, basically, if you get the synopsis, if you read the blurb, it makes perfect sense why people want to pick it up. It's great escapism. It's got a beautiful locale. The main character, you get to watch her grow up. And even though she is white and she is pretty, she is still marginalized. And you have something to root for in that way. And gasp, there's a murder Oh my God, you're getting so much in one. It almost <laughs> advertises itself as many books in one when realistically that's the one thing that drags it down the most. I do think that fact alone makes it an incredibly compelling pickup. And I think it makes it quite easy for people to recommend to other people. But the fact that it's done so more than the rest of the books on Tesco shelves is insane to me. Almost like out of complete luck it doesn't make sense to me because i love i love a good tesco read a lot of my favorite books are tesco reads but this is like it's so out there and even though there is a lot of beauty in this it is quite generally bloated so i am really surprised that it has been able to prosper in the way that it has it's <laughs> it's where the crudad sing like gone girl for people who don't have the courage to root for amy dunn oh my yeah 
Oh my god, she's not Amy Dunn until the end either. They get the bliss of living with the most like the most perfect innocent Marsh girl until the end. Then they get their injection of adrenaline at the end and they go, oh. Oh. <laughs> oh wow. Well, it's like, come on, people who like where the crawdad sing, just like just admit to yourself that you wanna you love Gone Girl. <laughs> and that you wanna support Amy Dunn because Amy Dunn, I can get behind because she's up front from the beginning mm. <laughs> about what she's doing and why she's doing it. And she's not asking for sympathy. She's not all like, woe is me, I'm connected to nature. She's like, I wanted to murder this man and I did and I got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what then, in, in that case, we're comparing it to Gone Girl. I do think that Where the Crawdads Sing has a really good application and that's in lowering people into that kind of subgenre. I don't want to keep calling it the good for her subgenre, but that's basically what it is. And it's a, re- it's a very simple way of getting you in there. It's like watching a not very scary horror film if you're not very good at horror films. It gives you it gives you that little shot at the end to make you go, ooh, it's almost it's quite it it's even though it's wildly unsuccessful by my metrics, it's it's at least a little shot of adrenaline and a little bit of like a tantalizing peek into what the rest of the genre has. And it's probably not good to come away from a book thinking, ah, this makes me want to read a different book entirely by a different author. But it, I, th- I think it could work in that way. It, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, what's that song that Taylor Swift did with Nobody, No Crime? Uh, no, that, by Taylor Swift I have crime. actually thought about this. This is, yeah, this, this, it's, that, it's that song, the book. Is that I feel like this is the yeah this is how to like ease you into that genre <laughs> of yeah where the crowd sing is like oh is this your first unlikable female protagonist like you're so like absolutely suffocated by patriarchal expectations that women have to be pure and like maternal at all times mm. that we're going to give you this book and then at the end it's like boom she's actually a sociopath how did that make you feel <laughs> and they should have a list of recommendations at the back of the book of like other books and stories <laughs> where women are sociopaths and it's actually okay to have like a wide range of female characters it's interesting they don't have to all be um, naive, skinny, white little waifs <laughs> who are so innocent and love nature. You see, I tell you what, I think now that we're on that, I had it in my head when I came out of the cinema and I'd finished reading the book. And I, I genuinely thought to myself, I can see exactly why Taylor Swift liked this. Because... It's the the image of in my head of Taylor Swift is probably vastly different from the actual Taylor Swift now that we know about her CO two emissions, but it, it, this film <laughs> this, this film strikes me as a film that a woman in her late thirties can sit on the sofa and wrap up in your favorite cardigan and get a nice cup of tea and just watch the leaves fall off the trees outside and stick on a film about a girl who lives in the marsh and loves nature and also is a complete lunatic, but also not until the end. I think, I think is, it's really good for that. <laughs> the thing is, we already have the notebook 
And like, I'm not the biggest fan of the notebook. But that's about a story of, of a girl who lives in a marsh and the man goes away and then he like comes back again, right? And then he builds her a house. It's nice. <laughs> We've got autumnal nice. romances. We've got when Harry met Sally. We can like we can work with that. Yeah, I feel like we have nice stories about people living in marshes, falling in love. That don't that don't have weird last act murder reveals. <laughs> <laughs> See, we we're wailing on it really with with all the murder stuff because obviously I'm it's, sorry. It, no, yes. no, honestly, that, that's what this <laughs> podcast is for. This is this is therapy for me, to be honest. But there's there is <laughs> there is a lot that I do really like about this book, and I think there was one moment in particular which really jumped out to me, and that's when Kaya gives her book to jump in, and he displays it in the window of his shop. That was something that I was, I, it jumped out at me because I've, I've, I went through that book just sort of, okay. And it didn't really emotionally stir me at any point. But when that happened, I was just, oh, oh, it's like, oh, it's like she's his daughter. It's nice. It's just, it's, it's just a little bit of soppiness that won me over. Maybe, maybe I'm easy, but <laughs> it was just, it was just really lovely. And I think their relationship in the book, especially because it's, it's practically non-existent in the film. But Kaya's relationship with Jumpin is something that's incredibly sweet and I think was a big emotional tether for me in the book. If I had any, it was finding out what would happen with Kaya and Jumpin's relationship. Yeah, I think I think I do. I it it's definitely clear that I feel like I dislike this more than you. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think apologize so. <laughs> for wailing on it so hard. But I think for me, like I I still I do agree with you. You know, there are when she's observing just small gestures of humanity and like the very little things that characters do for each other, it is quite nice. And it it feels grounded in in like the idea that very isolated people find a way to come together. That's very nice. But mm. I think what I just really struggle with is that I can't I find it difficult to buy any of that when the overall structure and the the like the thesis of the entire book to me is sort of kind of verging on just it's just weird it, it, it's just weird. I, ah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's like where the crawdad's saying if you're just if you're looking at it with a magnifying glass it's a nice book but mm. the second you close the book and you step away from it and you put it on the table and you go huh then for me, it's just like, what the hell? Because <laughs> I, it's like even with the the character with her relationship with Jumping and Mabel, it's like you go in the the little details. You go, oh, that's really sweet. They really cared about each other. And you're like, wait a minute, what is she trying? What is she trying to say with this though? <laughs> it's like, and you know, you take another step back, and you're like, what? What, like why were those characters written like why was that that scene of like horrific racism like what was that trying to say in connection to Kai and it just like that's where my brain it kind of it's like the house of cards effect where it's like every small little gesture and detail collapses because I I feel very uncomfortable about what it's in service of I guess yeah. that's my takeaway yeah in, t in terms of the messaging I think every new detail sort of disproves the last 
And I know exactly what Delia Owens is trying to do. And I think, well, I hope it's unsuccessful. Otherwise, I've completely misinterpreted what she's trying to do. And she's gone in the complete opposite direction. But it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense in terms of its messaging. So what it does is it gives you a glossy front to look at and to go through it. And like you said, if you look at it in a with a magnifying glass, you can enjoy the small pieces of it. And if you are enjoying it in small sections, then you could call it great, I think. There's a lot to really enjoy about this book, but as an entire uniform experience, it's hard to recommend it, especially when it feels like two different experiences it doesn't feel like one uniform story it's one crashing into the other and getting jumbled up in the middle as it goes and there is a lot that i respect about this book and it is really beautiful and i know exactly why people are reaching for it because it's gorgeous escapism and an adventure through the marsh and a little bit of love and a little bit of mystery but it can't effectively do one of those things better than the other and equally nothing really stands out either i think a lot of it is is middling because it can't quite decide what it's trying to be and it flip-flops between those ideas on the fly (sighs) okay now that we've got that out of our system i feel whole i feel complete i feel mentally balanced (laughs) It's time to take a look at the next book that we'll be covering on the podcast. And it's another first for us. Look at us go. See, we're we're constantly adapting and moving. I love it. Mm -hmm. Next Mm -hmm. month, we're going to be taking a look at our very first memoir. And it's by none other than Marxist revolutionary Che Guevara. We'll be reading his book, The Motorcycle Diaries, his recounting of his early travels across South America with his friend Alberto Granado. We'll also be watching the film of the same name, directed by Walter Salas and starring Gael Garcia Bernal as the man himself. You can find the book in your local bookshop, in audiobook form, on your e-reader, and you can rent the film on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Big Screen Book Club and an extra special thank you to our patrons, especially to Will Driver and Rachel, our ultimate bibliophile subscribers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Keep up to date with us on Twitter and Instagram at BSBBookPod. I am Clarice Lockery. (laughs) And I'm Joseph Coe. And we'll catch you next time.